Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, we'll be finishing up uh, my look at, or our look at, uh, Pierre or the Ambiguities by, by Herman Melville. And I have to say, although this book is growing on me, I'm happy to be putting an end to it, at least for the time being. It's, it's a very difficult work. It's a very odd work. It's, it's hard to handle. It's not that I didn't enjoy reading it. It's more it's hard to talk about. And I'm often unsure really where to go with it. And I, I feel that, this, you know, maybe Melville saying things that are that are going past me a little bit. Um, so in that sense, I'm kind of glad to to get over this. And there's no other work kind of coming up that Melville wrote that that is a similarly intimidating. We have Israel Potter and the, um, the Confidence Man. Um, one is more more conventional a story than the other, obviously, but not quite as difficult. Because Confidence Man, although modernist and, and, and kind of out of time like Pierre is, it's a little bit easier to handle. And then we got these wonderful short stories. We got a return to some sea fiction with Benito Sereno and Billy Budd. So kind of more familiar ground, I guess, in, in those works. Still, um, there's a lot to say yet and a lot to talk about with the end of and to Pierre. So we've gotten through books 1 through 18 in the previous episode. So in this episode, we'll go through books 19 and to the final chapter, the final book, which is book 26. So uh, there's not that many books left uh, to look at. Um, really, the plot, I guess the pace of the plot picks up a little bit. Again, you know, we're, we're three-fourths through this novel, and it seems not that much happened. All that really went on is that this young man, Pierre, found he has a a half-sister or thinks he has a half-sister it's never really definitively shown that he that this woman is his half-sister uh to save face for his family and for her decides to marry her in the process he abandons his fiance he tells his parents or his mother his other his father's dead tells his mother for this he's disowned and forced to leave his glorious county estate Moved to the city with his, with his wife, and now and also with a young woman who was being ostracized in the community for giving birth to a illegitimate child. Goes to the city. We learn a little bit about more about his background. We learn that he was a promising young writer who has published a number of works and was actually getting the attention of of, of editors. And that's the theme we left off in the end. It seems to me again that this is something that Melville seems to add at this point in his writing. We see very little evidence of this prior in the story. I think it's, at one point Melville writes that if you've been paying attention, you know, you may have noticed this. I didn't, and I was a bit, you know, it, it comes as a bit of surprise, I think. What does he say? In the earlier volumes of this, chapters of this volume, it has somewhat been passingly intimated that Pierre was not only a reader of poets and fine writers, but likewise a thoroughly allegorical understander of them. Yeah, it doesn't even say he. there's evidence he was a writer. It's something that seems to be added to the story towards the end. And he had a history with, with editors. And this is how he hopes to make his living in the city. So that's all that's happened. And we got 100 pages left. And we're right to ask, like, where is this story really going to go? Where is it going to end up? Is, it just going to, is that going to be the story, essentially, that he goes and establishes himself in the city with this new family? And, and I mean, that could... That's a story. I mean, it's not a bad one, um, but it does go in different ways and maybe in a, in, in a more conventional way. Actually, at the end of the, of the tale, we so much of the first part of the story is, is weird. And 
this, the last part, it's kind of conventional, right? We have a story of the spurned lover coming back into the picture. We have the offended brother or the offended uh, family of the spurned lover seeking revenge. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a tragic ending. I mean, it's, it's kind of stuff we've seen before in literature, uh, to be sure. <clears throat> So there's nothing super surprising in the final part, and it does is more conventional. It's also more conventionally written. The end of the, the end of the story, it's more straightforwardly written. While the first half, especially, is written really in this overdrawn way, long sentences, long passages. I mean, page after page of just the musings of our of our hero. The the last quarter of the novel is, is really comes to us more conventionally. It's got more of a standard plot, I guess. So anyways, let's start with book 19. The book 19 is called The Church of the Apostles. And so where we go is to this, into this city, and we've already seen how Pierre has, you know, been spurred in his effort to, to stay with his cousin, um, uh, Glenn Stanley. He wants, uh, Glenn Dingeen Stanley is his name. He's hoping to stay with him, and he's turned away and actually spurned. Uh, Stanley pretends he doesn't even see them. We find out that he actually had designs on Lucy, Pierre's fiance, so he has personal reasons to be upset with with Pierre coming in with this with this new wife. So he can't go there, so he decides to make it on his own really as a writer. And so he goes to this kind of rundown part of the city. Um, now I don't know quite where this is set. I don't think we're ever told what city it's set in. I suppose it could have been New York City, but, you know, as these cities grew and became more um, even industrial or proto-industrial in the middle of the 19th century, sometimes they would break up big buildings, even mansions of rich people. As rich people moved out maybe to the countryside or to the west, their old mansions were broken up into kind of apartments for for working class people. And that's sort of the kind, that's kind of the place that Pierre and these, these two women he's with go to. They go to what's essentially an old church that gets repurposed into apartments. And the people who stay here are all kind of writers and philosophers and artists. It's kind of like a bohemian community almost in the city. And here's how Melville describes it. Here they sit and talk like magpies or descending in quest of improbable dinners are to be seen drawn up along the curb in front of the eating houses like lean rows of broken-hearted pelicans on a beach, their pockets loose hanging down and flabby, like a pelican's pouches when fish are hard to, hard to be caught. But these poor penniless devils still strive to make ample amends for their physical forlornness by resultly reveling in the region of blissful ideals. They're mostly artists of various sorts, painters or sculptors or indigent students or teachers of languages or poets or fugitive French politicians or German philosophers. Their mental tendencies, however heterodox at times, are still very fine and spiritual on the whole, since the vacuity of their exchequers lead them to reject the coarse materialism of Hobbes and incline to the airy exaltations of the Berkeleyan philosophy. So that's a little taste of, of who these, these people are. Like... Not the hard-nosed materialist of Hobbes, right? More speculative, more optimistic. Just the typical uh, sort of hippie commune is, is kind of the image we get of this place, this former church. Now, one thing we'll, of course, notice is this is a halfway move to the city, almost. Um, or at least for Pierre, it's not a full transition to a different way of life because these are people sort of like Pierre. They think about philosophy. They're writers. They're, it's not, he's not jumping into the city fully. He's not becoming 
Um, and this is going to be a detriment to him because he's not going to be able to become the kind of writer he needs to be to make a buck, to make a living. He's going to be a writer who's constantly going to be reinforced by idealism and wild speculation. And yeah, certainly creativity, but that's not necessarily the best way to, to make a buck, as Melville's own career shows. The bolder novels of Melville's were the least well-received, and the ones he, he was more conventional with, the conventional adventure tale, were the ones he was most famous for. And so it's not long after coming to live with these people and being influenced by their kind of really quasi-religious um, approach. The fact that they live in church is, is a nice little symbol here. What he becomes convinced of is that his early writings, the ones that got him the attention of, of editors, are inferior and need to be replaced, need to be thrown out entirely for something new. He even says at one point, I am nothing, it is all a dream. We dream that we dream we dream, right? And so he says he's going to instead write deeper novels and deeper stories or deeper poems or whatever. He's actually going to get uh, to some kind of deeper truth. He's going to abandon kind of his silly, the silly works of his youth. In a way, it's almost the opposite of what we saw back when we looked at Martin Eden. And you can go back to listen to my podcast on Martin Eden, where you had a writer struggling to make ends meet, writing very conventional tales, and then he finally makes success. His success comes at the end of his life when he starts writing bigger ideas, right? What happens with Pierre is his conventional early stuff is what make him famous. And then his later thoughtful, reflective, philosophical writings are what lead to the end of his career. It's all very rushed. Obviously, we only have about 100 pages to, to deal with that and the aftermath of, of you know, his choices to abandon his family. So Martin Eden is all about the quest of a writer to make it. Um, but I just notice it's, it's a little bit of an opposite um, trend there. So anyway, that's, that's book 19. It's all about him kind of settling in in this apartment complex with all these other writers. And, you know, is it good influence or not? I mean, what's, what's the purpose of art? Certainly, I do think there are lofty purposes for art, and that's something we should appreciate. But our hero here is, he has to make a living for himself, right? And so it's going to end up being a bit of his downfall to embrace his more speculative um, tendencies. But he's being reinforced by the people around him. And, and I don't know if, if Melville is thinking about the, the company he's keeping. And I, I don't know enough about his biography, who he's with at this time, if, if he's spending too much time with, with Hawthorne and the transcendentalists. Uh, I, I think there's a strong suggestion that that's what's happening here. And I don't think he's blaming those influences for the, the fall off in his career. I, I think he, in a way he's standing by his choice to write these kind of works. He's writing it right now, right? Pierre is a work that's not going to be well received and I think he very well knows that. But it, nevertheless, he's trying to explain this experience and, and how the market conflicts with art. So book 20 is called uh, Charlie Millithorpe and he's kind of another character who's a foil for Pierre, uh, maybe actually one of the better foils for Pierre in the novel, because um, he's actually got a connection to uh, the Glending. While Glending is an aristocrat, Charlie Millithorpe is the scion of a more kind of yeoman farmer family that has been living on the Glending lands for a while. So Charlie had, had moved to the city eventually, unable to make it as a farmer, 
And, you know, Pierre actually knows about him and knows about this, this story. So running into him is a bit like um, some, he gets a chance to connect to his past in a way. But he's kind of from the same place, but he comes from the poverty side of where Pierre comes from. And Pierre, of course, comes from wealth. But now they have a lot in common. Pierre is also poor and, and desperate for a living. Uh, here's what Melville writes. Uh, Pierre had not forgotten what the augmented punery of the Millithorpes was at the time we now retrospectively treat of, gravely imputed in the gossiping frequenters of the Black Swan Inn to certain insinuated moral derelictions of the farmer. The old man tipped his elbows too often. Once said in Pierre's hearing, an old bottlenecked fellow performing the identical same act with a half-emptied glass in his hand. But though the form of old Millithorpe was broken, his countenance, however sad and thin, betrayed no slightest sign of the sot, either past or present. He was never publicly known to frequent the inn, and seldom quitted the few acres he cultivated with his son. And though at last indigent enough, yet he was the most punctually honest in paying the little debts of a shilling and pence for his groceries. So you know, what we have here is a, is a little yeoman farmer trying to make ends, ends meet. Um, but it's a connection to Pierre's past and the Saddle, Saddle, Saddle Meadow estate. Both are characters who are taking care of family members. Uh, of course, Pierre now has to deal with Isabel, his new wife, and and Deli, the the young woman they take into their household as well. Charlie's also uh, taking care of his family, but he he chooses a more conventional profession of law, while Pierre chooses to write and to write philosophy. Now, although Charlie is in the law and it, he doesn't urge him to for the conventional job, he actually pushes Pierre into philosophy. He says at one point, you do not say it, but you hint at a low purse. Now I shall help you to fill it. Stump the state on the Kantian philosophy. A dollar ahead, my boy. Pass around your beaver and you'll get it. End quote. He doesn't just say you have something important to say. Do it. He actually says you're going to make money stumping Kant. Um, and it's, it's, it turns out to be fairly bad advice, it seems. So then we get to book 21, which is called Pierre Immaturely Attempts Mature Work, Tidings from the Meadows and Plenimon. You know, I don't know if we're going to put this kind of in Melville's life. You know, is this Marty? Is this the, the pre-immature mature work? But anyways, that's, that's where we're at. He, so he goes ahead. He's, he's encouraged by the people he's around. He's encouraged by Charlie to pursue his, his mature philosophical work. And we think of the same kind of overall language that plagues much of the first part of the novel. Uh, really, this, this kind of verbal diarrhea coming from Pierre's mind. We just get more of it here. And um, it, it can't end well, <laughs> one imagines. Um, and this leads him to be rather indifferent to the situation around him. Um, well, I don't know. Like he he gets news from home, and he gets two pieces of news from home in this chapter, and, and that's what's actually in the title. It's uh, tidings from the meadows. He gets news that basically uh, that Stan Glenn Stanley, instead of helping him in the city, has actually gone to his Saddle Meadows to court Lucy, to court Lucy, his um, his former fiance, which of course is kind of wow, a bit devastating for him. He did seem to love Lucy and have a fondness for her, even though he had to abandon her to save the reputation of Isabel. He also gets news that his mother dies, and the way it's 
talked about. I don't know. It, it's he's. I, it struck me as he was kind of indifferent. I, there's statements here that suggest it hits him, but the way it's presented is so matter-of-fact, it's, it's kind of shocking. So, quote, Pierre had passed some weeks when verbal tidings came to him of three momentous events. First, his mother was dead. Second, all saddle medals was to become Glenn Stanley's. Third, Glenn Stanley was believed to be the suitor of Lucy, who, convalescent from an almost mortal illness, was now dwelling in her mother's house in town. It was sharply mentioned that these events, which darted a sharp natural anguish into Pierre, no letter had come to him, no smallest ring of memorial had been sent to him, no slightest mention had been made in this of him in the will, and yet it was reported that an inconsolable grief had induced his mother's mortal malady and driven her at length into insanity, which suddenly terminated in death. And when he had heard of that event, she had been cold on the ground for 25 days. How plainly did all this speak of the equally immense pride and grief of his once magnificent mother, and how agonizingly did it now hint of her mortally wounded love for her once and only beloved Pierre. End quote. What kind of bothers me about this passage is it's all about Pierre, right? When Pierre hears about his mother's death, his response is, this just proves how much she loves me or loved me. It's, it's not about the damage he has done to his family by his, his choices. So then he actually meets this philosopher, um, Plimenon, and this is the philosopher who's reading on the cart. This was the one who had this idea of, of kind of two beings in the universe, one of man, which is the watchmaker who only can really see the local environment, who's trapped by kind of the senses, and then what's called the crom, is that the chronological, chronological, sorry. I had to go back and look it up. The chronometer perspective, which is kind of the, that of Christ, which can see the whole totality of things, right? And Pierre was reading this and trying to get some insight about his life from this philosophical essay. And then like, he can't finish the essay because the last pages are ripped off or lost, and he just is kind of baffled by it, right? And that scene is more or less relived in chapter or book 22, or book 21, Sorry, when he he has the conversations with Plamen and, and still really can't understand him, or really get what he's coming at, or apply what he's trying to say to his own life. So Pierre, and, and then okay, let's jump to book twenty-two. It's called "The Flower Curtain Lifted from Before a Tropical, a tropical Author" with some remarks on the transcendental flesh brush philosophy. So there's a lot going in there. Well, this fresh flesh brush philosophy mentioned here is um let's let's get the definition from the text itself i mean it's i really can't find it quoted directly but the, the implication is that by denying his body and his physical needs you're going to get by doing that you're going to kind of lead to philosophical understanding that's kind of the aesthetic idea right if there's that kind of tradition, I think, in Hinduism, and the Buddha actually tried this, right? You get try to get to some understanding through not eating or whatever, and the Buddha eventually rejects that. But he seems to be trying with this. And the narrator here actually critiques this right in the text, even though that seems to be where Pierre is going. He says, The finest houses are most cared for within. The outer walls are freely left to the dust in the suit. Put venison in thee, and so wit shall come out of thee. It is one thing in a mill, but another in the sack. Um, but anyways, Pierre does embrace this idea of kind of uh, suffering and sacrifice to, to get to his philosophical um, 
you know, speculation, to become the writer he wants to be. And so he just begins to kind of devote himself to his writing, to the abandonment of all other things, all their personal connections. We don't really see any mention of Isabel or his other companions. Deli are kind of just in the background in this part of this novel. Of course, he's lost Lucy, he's lost his family, his mother, his estate, his family, his father. You know, at least spiritually, he's lost his father. So he's, he's all alone, basically, with him and his work. And he just is writing all day. Um, but, you know, it, it's not going well for him. He's just kind of getting dragged down by the burden of, of his labors. We actually get this rather devastating scene where we see him kind of working all day and just exhausted, kind of, you know, comes out of his chambers and sees Deli and Isabel, you know, and they're trying to beg him to eat, but he doesn't. And it's all rather sad. And um, maybe we've met people like this who are workaholics and, you know, see to find, can only find meaning in work. Um, you know, and it just ends up destroying them from, from the inside. And that, that's where Pierre is at this point. He's putting all his efforts into this writing because that's all he really has, has left. Why he doesn't invest in Isabel, who he sacrificed so much for, is... Is, is a bit of an odd question, and it's, it's, I don't think it's fully explained here. Maybe he's so broken up by his news from home that this is all he sees, but you know, Isabel is who he abandoned all this for, and she's such in the background in this part of the story, and pretty much for the rest of the novel, she just hangs out in, in the background of the story. Um, <clears throat> Book 23 is called A Letter for Pierre, Isabel, Arrival of Lucy's easel and trunks at the Apostles. So what happens here in this chapter is, well, what, what we, we're, the beginning reminds us that Lucy's not fully banished from Pierre's mind, uh, despite his efforts. Um, and then just, you know, just as this has been, we're reminded of Lucy and the place of Lucy in Pierre's heart, he gets a letter Pierre gets a letter from Lucy basically saying, I still love you. I need to be with you. I need to resolve things with you. So I'm going to come and live with you. And I'm going to kind of bring my art, my, my artistic work with me. And that's it. I'm going to just show up. And, and actually, Pierre's like, great. You know, the more the merrier. And he essentially welcomes Lucy to, to come. And Isabel appears in the story here briefly, only to be kind of plowed over by Pierre's insistence on allowing Lucy to come. And we really see kind of the irrationality of, of Pierre, I think. And I guess, does he think he can have his cake and eat it too? I guess. Um, or maybe he's so much in his mind, he really doesn't understand what this really means to allow Lucy to move in and what it will do to Isabel and, and how it really will dig up all these old problems from his home, the things he's trying to leave and, and run away from. And in book 24, it's called Lucy at the Apostles, which means Lucy at this, these apartments that Pierre is staying with. And, you know, she shows up as she said she would. She actually had sent her, her stuff earlier, you know, it had gotten there like the day before or something. So she shows up and she's walked them in, but she's followed very closely with, with Glenn uh, Glenn Stanley, who of course is now courting Lucy and is kind of the patriarch of, of the estate that once Pierre had, had claimed to. So he comes, and also Frederick, who's Lucy's older brother, and they're both trying to get Lucy back home because she, they don't want him to do anything with, with Pierre. They actually have this 
horrendous hatred for Pierre for what he did to the family, for what he did particularly to Lucy. And so they're trying to talk her into abandoning Pierre, but they can't really do that. And they, they leave frustrated in their efforts to, to call back, to bring back Lucy to home. And later she gets a visit from Mrs. Tartan, her mother, and again trying to plead her to come back and not hang out with this um, loser weirdo Pierre Glendine. And she makes this very bold declaration that she's going to stick by Pierre no matter what, even acknowledging the marriage as legitimate, saying, I am Lucy Tartan. I have come to dwell during my pleasure with Mr. and Mrs. Pierre Glendinging of my own unsolicited free will. If they desire it, I shall go, but no other power shall remove me except by violence, and against my violence I have the ordinary appeal to the law. And then Lucy is disinherited from her mother. She says, this is what Mrs. Tartan says to, his, to, his, to her daughter. Girl, here's where I stand. I forever cast thee off. Never more shall be vexed by my maternal entreaties. I shall instruct thy brothers to disown thee. I shall instruct Glenn Stanley to banish thy worthless image from his heart. If banished thence, it may not already be thine by own incredible folly and depravity. For thee, Mr. Monster, the judgment of God will overtake thee for this. And for thee, madam, I have no words for a woman who will connivingly permit her own husband's paramour to dwell beneath her roof. For thee, frere one, to, this is to Delhi, thou need no amplification, a nest of vileness. And now, surely, whom God himself hath abandoned forever, a mother may quit, never more to revisit. And that's it. And so she's now disowned. So, and everyone in this house is declared as kind of sinful freaks and outcasts. Pierre for marrying his half-sister, Isabel for allowing this goofy, kind of foursome relationship, Deli for being in, having an illegitimate child earlier. So, you know, society basically cast off all, the, all of these people for this, for their, their sins. And that's the end of book 24. And book 25 is called Lucy, Isabel, and Pierre. Pierre is his book and Enclade Us. That's spelled E-N-C-E-L-A-D-U-S. And if like me, you, you didn't know what that is or don't know what it is, it's, you have to go to Greek mythology. Um, I guess that's a good guess where you'd find it, but it's, it's one of the, um, one of the giants the offspring of Gaia and Uranus. And it's, yeah, the story comes out in the chapter. Now, most of this chapter is spent back in Pierre's mind where he works through his, the ambiguities, essentially, of, of his life. Like the ambiguity between Lucy and Isabel, and the ambiguity about who he, who he really loves, for instance, or. You know, this whole situation, the whole family situation here is so bizarre. So there's a lot of ambiguity in there. Another ambiguity is like his work. The fact that the harder he works, the more difficult it is for him to grasp the, the truth. And I, I think reading this book is an exercise in this, right? Uh, the more you read this book and the more you try to think about it, maybe the harder it is to actually grab on to what's trying to be said there. And, you know, that might be a problem in a lot of these, these type of works of this type. Right, I'm like I do think there's a solid ground to like Melville, to Moby Dick. I mean, or even Marty. But if you try to, if you take them too seriously, or you read them too deeply, or try to spend too much time with them, I can imagine those truths that seem simple at first reading slipping away. Right. This is from the writer's point of view, though. But you have that same kind of. He has that same frustration, and that's another level of the ambiguities referred to in the title of the book. 
And as for the writing thing, here's what I was mentioned. This is in the Library of America, page 394. As every evening after the day's writing was done, the proofs of the beginning of the work came home for correction. Isabel reread them to them. They were replete with errors, but preoccupied by the thronging and undiluted pure imaging of things, he had become impatient of the minute gnat-like torments. He randomly corrected the worst and let the rest go, jeering with himself at the rich harvest and thus furnished to the entomological crisis. But at last he received the tremendous interior intimidation to hold off, to be still from his unnatural struggle. And he goes on for a couple pages here to actually talk about how the deeper he gets into his book, the more elusive uh, the truth is. So the chapter, the book, still calling them chapters. In fact, interestingly, although they're called books, sometimes the narrator describes them as chapters. So I shouldn't feel bad about doing that. Uh, but the, the whole last part of this book is a dream he has, and this is where the Enclidius um, part uh, comes into it. And he basically dreams he is on a mountain, or has a, kind of a vision of this mountain, which he associates with the, this giant. Now, if you don't know the story, Melville tells you the story in the final pages of, of the chapter, this Enclidius story. And essentially, he's the, the, the son of Gaia and Uranus, and He's trying then to go from Earth. His quest becomes to kind of scale the Earth and get to the sky, right? And for this, he gets punished. And, and I'll just read how Melville tells the story. Old Titan self was the son of incestuous Golis and Terra. That's just the other names for these people. The son of incestuous heaven and Earth. And Titan married his mother Terra, another in a community incestuous match. And therefore, Enclidius was one issue. So Enclidius was both the son and grandson of an incest. And thus, even there had been born from the organic, blended heavenliness and earthliness of Pierre. Another mixed, uncertain, heaven-aspiring, but still not wholly earth-emancipated mood, which again, by its terrestrial taint, held down by its terrestrial mother, generated there the present doubly incestuous Enclidius within him. So that the present mood of Pierre, that reckless sky-assaulting mood of his, was nevertheless the one side of the grandson of the sky. For it is according to eternal fitness that the precipitated titan should still seek to regain his paternal birthright, even by fierce escalade. Wherefore, whoso storms the sky gives best proof he came thither. But whatsoever crawls contented in the moat before the crystal fort shows it was born within that slime, and there forever will abide. So for this, it seems Enclidius was punished by the gods to be stuck to earth, right? But the whole metaphor here is Pierre's attempt to get to the transcendent. Uh, but he's being tied down to earth by his heritage. And the language of incest is all throughout this section, obviously. He himself is not a product of incest, Pierre, at least that, that we know of. But incest kind of overwhelms his life in the way he talks about his mother, his relationship with his mother. Not technically incestuous, but the language of incest is there often in the way they talk to each other. And then, of course, you have the Isabel uh, marriage, which is never, we're never, it's never proven it's consummated, but it's at least highly suggested that it is. And, you know, he thinks she's his half-sister. So, anyway, it's, it's, it's a weird kind of end here, but the, the dream is leads him to think of Enclidius, the story of Enclidius, and this striving to, to reach the father, right? That's the same thing that Pierre was trying to do, is to, to, to reach this kind of abstract father. The father is just the picture on the wall, right? Not a human being, because he died. But um, 
it's he can't get there anymore because that image of his father has been destroyed. Right? So that's something tying him to Earth. And then his writing is another way he's trying to transcend Earth. And he still can't get there. Like, it's just his mind. He's, he's not capable of breaking free. So he the point here is that Pierre can't get beyond the earth. He can't get to the sky, essentially the father figure, the godhead, whatever he's striving for. So um, then we get to book uh, 26 called, this is the last chapter, the last book of the book, uh, called A Walk, A Foreign Portrait, A Sail, and The End. And, and this whole section is fairly plot heavy. So basically everything starts to fall about part for Pierre pretty quickly after this this dream. Now it starts out nice enough though. He takes Isabelle and Lucy, his menage a trois, to to the gallery, to the to the uh, art gallery, and they comment on different artworks. Uh, one one portrait in particular uh, attracts Lucy, and she looks at this picture and she says she likes this picture and she sees her own image in it. I think the picture is called the Stranger. And she says, yeah, I kind of look like that. And then she says, that sort of looks like my dad, the man who came in saying he was the father. And Pierre earlier had had that same conversation with the portrait of his father where he saw Isabelle in the picture of her father, right? So at this point in the story, we're obviously supposed to begin to doubt whether, you know, who's really Isabelle's father and whether this whole connection to the Glendinging family is just the fantasy that both of them agreed to um, enjoy. Um, she says, you know, your father sort of looks like this, but, you know, he destroyed that painting, so the evidence of what his father looks like is gone, and we're left with just memory, right, and imagination. And we all do this all the time, right, where if we don't see pictures of people, that, that what they look like, you know, changes over time. There's, there's actually a, a book called The Return of Martin Gare, which is a history book, and later became actually a movie, uh, which is about medieval France. And in that story, it's a real life, it's actually a real historical account where a man leaves for the wars, comes back like 10 years later, claiming to be this person, Martin Gere, and the wife accepts him as him, but it turns out it's a different person altogether, just faking who he is. Like a friend of Martin Gere comes, takes over his identity. And the point partially is that like I, identity was difficult to confirm in those days and memory filled in these gaps. and. Even our memory of what people look like fades, right? And people experience this when, you know, loved ones die and 20 years later, they, they might have pictures, but they have a hard time reconstructing in their mind what they, what they look like. Um, and we're meant to think, and in fact, there's a whole passage where Pierre is forced to really begin to doubt whether Isabel really was his, his sister and the lack, how, much, how dubious the evidence really is. I guess the good news of this is there's probably a good chance they're not incestuous incestuous here but of course it also means that Pierre abandoned his family for and his, his legacy and everything for nothing I mean it, Isabel could have said my, my, my father was George Washington for I guess maybe the dates wouldn't have lined up for that but it, you know it could have been anyone it really that's all she has is her memories as a young girl looking up at this person so uh, this starts to you know, break up their nice little menage a trois and Lucy and Isabel are often fighting and, and getting on each other's case about things. And anyways, it all comes to a head when Pierre gets basically 
two letters, two letters, one letter from the publisher saying, what you send me is nuts and don't send me anymore. You know, our contract is done. We don't want anything to do with you. Basically, his writing career is done, has ended in one quick whoosh. Maybe that's what Melville wished would happen to him. I don't know. Rather than because his writing career kind of dragged on failure after failure. But Pierre won't have to deal with that because his, his, edit, his editor basically says you're a nut. Which, it's kind of funny because that's how uh, Melville gets called after the publication of this book. Um, the letter's kind of short, so it's, it's worth looking at. Sir, you are a swindler. Upon the pretense of writing a popular novel for us, you have been receiving cash advances from us while passing through our press the sheets of blasphemous rhapsody, filched from the vile atheist Lucien and Voltaire. Our great publishing, press of publication has hitherto prevented the slightest inspection of our reader proof from your book. Do not send another sheet to us. Our bill for printing thus far, and also our cash advances, swindled out of us by you, is now in the hands of our lawyers who have instructed to proceed with instant rigor. So he gets that letter. Then he gets a second letter from Frederick and Stan Glenn Stanley saying, you know, you're a liar and, you know, we're going to kill you essentially or, or challenge you to a duel. And so Pierre, really with nothing left to lose, you know, prepares to duel Glenn Stanley and Frederick. He goes out in the street with his guns. He's attacked by um, Glenn and Frederick, who basically try to you know, wait for him to come out and jump him. Pierre eventually kills Glenn Stanley, and and he's then captured. It's all presented very quickly. It's very rapid. Things come to a to an end very very suddenly. As part of the story. So the last paragraph after he shoots um, Glenn Stanley is spatterings of his own kindred blood were upon the pavement. His own hand had distinguished his house and slaughter. The only outlaw human being by the name of Glenn Dingy. And Pierre was seized by a hundred contending hands. What is that? Are these like just the other people the of the community dragging him down? I don't know. But he wakes up or the next doesn't wake up, but next we see him, he's in the dungeon, waiting to be executed. His sentence is hung by the neck till dead, so if there was a trial, we don't see it. It's all jumped over quickly, so he's just waiting to be uh, killed in prison. Lucy shows up and just sort of dies there you know, for no reason. Much like his mother just sort of died um, when her time came, when she wasn't needed for the story, out of despair, heartbreak, whatever. And Pierre then kills himself. That's it. That's the story. I think, yeah, Isabel comes to visit him and she was hiding poison and she gives it to him. He kills himself and then uh, and the novel ends. The novel just ends. I actually think Isabel dies too. Um, all's over, this is what the last paragraph of the book. All's over and you know him not came a grasping from the wall and from the finger of Isabella dropped an empty vial as it had been run out sand glass and shivered upon the floor. Her whole form slept sideways and she fell upon Pierre's heart and her long hair rang over him and aborted him in ebon vines. So I guess she died too. I guess she took some of the poison. So that's, that's Pierre. That's the novel Pierre. So a rather sudden ending to, to the story. It all kind of comes together in the last chapter. Uh, we're told essentially that this whole thing may have been kind of meaningless. Uh, <laughs> the reason for him marrying Isabel is kind of proven to be highly dubious. 
um, at least the way I read it is there's really no good reason to think that she really is um, related to, to Pierre or much less a half-sister. Really all we have is rumors that he was having an affair with a French woman and these kind of ideas in, in Pierre's head that she looks like this. And then there was like another coincidence, right? The, the, the name on the napkin she had and her name on the guitar. Right, so it's all it's all circumstantial evidence. So that's it. Um, what do I think about this novel? Well, I find it extremely interesting. I find it also very difficult to talk about, obviously, and I don't always know what quite what to make of it. Maybe if I was more trained in philosophy, I would like it. But I also can imagine that if I was more trained in philosophy, I might be frustrated by the novel even more, uh, because. You know, I don't, I don't know if these philosophers are being read right or they're being misused or mishandled. You know, you know I'm not really, you know, I prefer like Moby Dick because that's a little bit more grounded in, in kind of realism almost. I don't know how to say that, but it's, it's more material. We spend so much of this book like in people's heads and in the heads of a very, very odd person and in the head of someone who's really not normal. It doesn't think normally and uses philosophy in ways that even normal people who are interested in philosophy don't use it, right? Like an ethicist or a, even a metaphysician. I mean, I read a lot of Philip Dick, obviously, and he's interested in philosophy, but he never goes quite like this with it. Um, it is kind of almost, maybe it could be read as a critique of philosophy that, you know, following these threads don't like really get you anywhere, you know, but it's a really roundabout way of, of making that point. Um, I do think it's worth looking at for some people just because it is so bizarre. And I, I think if you like Melville's other works, I, I think you, you have to take a stab at it, but I don't understand anyone who couldn't get through it very well. Um, I don't know, thematically, obviously we have the theme of, of the writer and the failed writer. We have uh, family and duty all being played with here. Um, I guess where we get the closest to a picture of like real American life is and, and real American kind of politics and, and something kind of grounded in the social history of America at the time is that conversation early in the novel about the American aristocracy and the rise of that in the countryside. It's all presented in a very fantastical way, obviously, as is much of the novel, but there's a lot of, I think, wealth of, of information about class in that earlier part. I, he doesn't do much, that much with it later on in the story. And of course, Melville explores this issue better, I think, in a sea fiction, in Tartarus of Maids, in, um, even in Billy Budd and these kinds of works. He, he plays, he does better with class, I think, than he does in this work. But it, it's sort of there, and that's another aspect of the novel that I think is, makes it worth at least considering, um, glancing at. So, I don't know. I don't want to say too much more about Pierre, to be honest. I. I think it's interesting. I just think it's very difficult. I can understand why people often want to skip this book when they read. Um, well, there it is. That's my effort to, to talk about Herman Melville's Pierre or the ambiguities. Um, yeah, I don't know much more to say about this novel. It's interesting. I, I don't know if that's good or bad. It's, it's, you know, if you're brave, check it out, I guess. Um, but what I'm going to do next is look at... Uh, Israel Potter. This is a much more conventional novel. I don't know if he wrote it really to get his career back on track or just to kind of cater to audiences. It has good things to say, but it's nothing like Pierre. It's 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 
almost the inverse. It's it's even more conventional than I think Taipei and Omu. It's 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 kind of like a standard adventure story, and a lot of it's very jingoistic in a lot of ways. I mean, jingoistic is the wrong term, but it's very patriotic in its way it presents American history. Um, but we'll see what we'll do. Two episodes on, on Israel Potter next. So if you have access to that novel, do do read it. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a nice, easy read. It's it's literally a book you can read in one setting. I'll do two episodes on it, but it is one you can just sit down with by the fireplace and finish very very quickly. So that's what's up next. In the meantime, if you have anything, any of your own thoughts about Pierre, please let me know. Leave your comments below. Um, sorry for the sound getting kind of goofy towards the end. I'm dealing with issues with my microphone. It's not the microphone's bad. It's it's the USB port and the power supply and it's. Something's wrong with my laptop, I guess. So I'm doing what I can with that to try to fix it uh, in post. But sometimes it's, it's not always it's, it's the high quality sound I wish I could have. So sorry about that, but uh, hopefully next time I won't have this trouble. So, but anyways, leave your comments below about Pierre, what you think. If, you know, I'm probably wrong about most of my thoughts on, on Pierre. Um, it is a weird one. It, it's kind of open to a lot of interpretation and, and, you know, I just find it weird and bizarre and kind of fascinating that this thing exists. So anyways, but leave your own comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll see you next time with uh, a much easier and more straightforward work, Israel Potter. Thanks for listening.